You know, it's good to have times in which we can uh, sing and be reminded of, of Jesus. You know, it's, he's the reason that we're here. He's the reason that we meet on Sunday mornings. It's because Jesus was God who became flesh, dwelt among us. And as he dwelt among us, he lived the life that we couldn't. He, he lived a perfect life in complete obedience to the Father. So he knows, in, in his obedience, he knows what it means to obey. But he also knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to, to walk the path that we walk and live the life that we live and so he knows the, the heartache of life. He knows the pain of life. He knows the hurt of life. And then he goes to a cross, where on the cross he died to pay the penalty for our sins. All of our, our shame, all of our guilt, all of our, our sin and rebellion was placed on Christ. And he paid for it on the cross. And then he died, and God rose him again from the grave. He brought him back to life so that our shame, our pain, our sin could all be dealt with. So that if we would yet but place our faith in Jesus, repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus, we can live in a relationship with him. We can call out to the God of the universe and call him Father. And he can call us children. So sometimes it's, in, especially in the the craziness of life, sometimes it's easy to forget Jesus. Sometimes it's easier for us to, to look at the tasks and the, the, the things of life and allow them to cloud over the fact that Jesus is the reason why we're here. I'm thankful uh, this morning to be back with you. I've been gone for a few weeks, one week on vacation, and last week I was at uh, the Hookesson campus, and so it's good to be back. It was, uh, brought me great joy this morning as uh, we drove in as a family. Well, first of all, as we went to Loma Coffee, I was thankful uh, for Loma Coffee this morning, re- being reminded of the way God has used our church uh, to be a light in in a place where there was no light, and how God has blessed Loma Coffee. So I was reminded of that. And then I drove here, and I remember I, I pulled up into the driveway this morning, and I looked out and saw the flags uh, being, that were already raised, and then walking in and seeing smiling faces of people that were already here. And I just am reminded how blessed we are, how blessed we are to be in a, in a place in the city or a little corner in the city where we can gather on a weekly basis, proclaim the love of Jesus, and to, to live in relationship with each other. I remarked this morning of the, of the smiles that I saw and the jokes that I heard being told and just the love that I feel amongst our campus. And I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for you. And this morning, we're going to continue our, our series uh, taking a look at friendship. Uh, the, uh, the thought for today is, is that friendship sharpens. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs chapter 27. And as you're turning to Proverbs chapter 27, I want you to think back to your best friend. Like who, who maybe is a best friend from your past, but I want you in your mind to think about your best friend. Maybe, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a, a coworker, maybe it's a childhood friend or a college friend. But just try and think in your mind, who would you determine? Maybe they're not your best friend now, but maybe they were a best friend. Just think of a best friend. One of my best friends uh, was, was my friend in college. We met on the very, very first day of cross-country practice. 
And I met Tom on the very first day of cross-country practice. And when we first met, we didn't like each other. I, as soon as I saw the guy, I'm like, I know I'm not going to like that guy. And I listened to him start talking. And I'm like, I definitely know that I'm not going to like this guy. And I know that in years later, him telling me that he knew that he wasn't going to like me. And God has a strange way of bringing people together. And Tom and I, over the course of our years in college together, actually developed a great and deep relationship. We had a mutual love for the Lord and a mutual love for one another. And we, we grew in our relationship together. He actually was my best man at my wedding, and I was the best man at his wedding. And uh, so our relationship grew. But I, I think one of the challenges in the early on was that I saw in him the things that I didn't like about myself. And so that's what irritated me, to, to see someone that was somewhat like me, but then also someone that was a little bit different than me. And, you know, through our relationship, there were two things that became so clear in that relationship. One was if we wanted to continue a relationship, it was always going to take communication. If we wanted to be in a relationship, we were going to have to talk. And the second thing is that when learning that we are in this relationship, what inevitably will come when you're in relationship with someone is conflict. So communication and conflict are, are the two things that I think are necessary for any good relationship, any good friendship. There was one time Tom and I had a, a, a huge disagreement. We were, um, I think I was my senior year in college. We were down in Panama City and uh, we were staying in a condo. Uh, we were doing a, uh, a beach reach where we were connecting with Campus Crusade for Christ, and we were down there sharing the gospel on the beach. And we came home one night, and it was, we took turns. One, one night, someone would um, make the, the meal, and then the next person would clean up the meal, and then the next night, we'd switch jobs. Well, this was Tom's night to, to do dishes. And so I, I made the meal, and then I left, and he was doing the dishes, and I came in. I'm like, Tom, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm washing dishes. And I began to, as any good friend does, I began to inspect his work because I knew that for the rest of the week, I was going to have to eat off the dishes that he was washing, and I wanted to make sure that uh, he wasn't doing it wrong. And I'm also kind of, at that time, I was more of a germaphobe than I am now, now that I've got kids. Like, I'm not afraid of germs. But at the time, I was afraid of germs. And so I began over his shoulder watching, and I'm like, Tom, you know you're washing dishes with cold water. He's like, yeah. I'm washing dishes with cold water. I'm like, you don't wash dishes with cold water. You can't. It is impossible to wash dishes with cold water because you're not washing the dishes. You're just getting them wet and sloping soap all over it, and you're not actually getting anything done. And he's like, you're not the boss of me. It's my turn to wash dishes. I'll wash dishes however I'm supposed to wash dishes or however I feel like washing dishes. And so this huge argument ensued. I'm surprised that plates weren't broken, but it was this huge argument. And I kept telling him over and over and over again, by not washing it with hot, with, when you wash it with cold water, you're leaving the soap on there and you're not getting all of the stuff that melted onto the plate away. How can you get like cheese off of a plate using cold, you just can't do it. And so that day we decided that uh, we were no longer going to be friends and we, that was it. Our relationship was over, over cold water washing the dishes. I'm still right to this day. You cannot wash dishes so Tom never, I never go over to Tom's house, never wash, I never eat off of his plates because he runs a filthy house, but I still love him. We soon, time later that night, we got back together and we kind of worked it all out and we just decided that we were going to wash dishes differently and it was going to be okay. I'll tell you that story just because in a great relationship, uh, there inevitably is going to be conflict. 
There's going to be times in which there's confrontation, where two people coming from two different perspectives or see the same thing from two different ways are going to communicate, they're going to confront, and they're going to conflict. I think this truth is highlighted in Proverbs chapter 27. If you look at me in uh, verse 17 of chapter 27, we read this. It says, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. This is the truth I want us to take a look at today. Iron sharpening iron. As we continue our, our series in friendship, biblical friendship, what does that look like? How does it feel? What do we, how do we live in this thing called biblical friendship? I want to remind us that, that friendship is the process of entrusting ourselves to another person. We, in friendship, what we're really doing is we're opening up our lives and we're giving access to someone else to come in and to share in our life together. Now, there are lots of different types of friendships. Uh, Marriage is a type of friendship. There's a friendship that you can have with a family type of friendship, and there's a friendship you can have with friends that are not blood-related. But it's this process of entrusting ourselves. What Solomon, the writer of Proverbs here, is giving us is he gives us an image to illustrate Hard confrontation in friendship. Like if you think about it, iron sharpening iron. Now, there's, there's a way in which iron can, two pieces of iron can be confronted with one another and it be harmful, but there's a way in which iron can actually sharpen itself, right? Imagine if I had two sticks of iron and I began just beating them against each other. What's going to happen? Bad stuff, right? It's gonna, you're going to have just this clanging together of two pieces of iron, and eventually one will get dinged up. The other one may get bent a little bit, which is not really good. But if you take two pieces of iron and you rub them the right way against each other, it can make uh, something that's dull into something that's sharp. So Solomon's saying here there's a way in which friendship, there's a way in which our intersections and our confrontations in our friendships can be beneficial If done right, if we collide together. It's almost the imagery of um, a a farm implement being sharpened. uh, Iron sharpening farm implements or um, uh, knives being sharpened together. You know, there's nothing more frustrating than a dull knife, right? Like if you think about it. Have you ever had a really, really nice tomato, and you're getting ready to make a BLT sandwich, and you've got this tomato, and you just want to slice it just right, so you reach to the drawer, and you get this knife out, and it happens to be dull, and so you begin to cut, and it doesn't break the skin, and so you get frustrated, and you push a little harder, and you push a little harder, and inevitably, what you end up doing is you're still not breaking the skin, but what you're doing is you're taking the inside of that tomato, and you're turning it into mush, Right? So eventually, by the time you finally break through the skin, it's, it's all just like this big tomato soup in the middle of your plate, which is very frustrating. But how satisfying is it when you take that sharp knife and you go to the tomato and you barely have to give it any force and it slices right through the tomato? It's almost as though everything on the inside stays intact. Isn't that an awesome feeling? You get to lay it on your sandwich, you get to bite into it, and you taste all the seeds and the goodness. Someone doesn't like tomatoes. (laughs) So our friendships are supposed to be useful. God knows that we're going to come in conflict with one another. We're going to end in times of confrontation. But there's a way in which it can move towards being beneficial or it can be harmful. And this proverb here is teaching us that our friendships 
We must take the position of, of taking a proactive position of where we sharpen one another. Now, the actual sharpening of knives in this way or the rubbing together of, of two pieces of metal, there's a mutualness that's going on. There's a mutualness. There's a time in which this piece of iron and this piece of iron are coming together. This one is doing the sharpening and this one's being sharpened. But then there's a time in which this one's doing the sharpening and this one's the one being sharpened. So there's a mutualness of rubbing together or confrontation in which you, that leads towards uh, godliness. Well, how does that happen? I think the greatest way this happens in our lives, in this coming together, this sharpening of each other, it happens through communication. That's one of the greatest ways that we're able to sharpen one another is through our words and through the ways in which we communicate. And I think this proverb here shows us a way in which there's negative or harmful communication that doesn't lead to growth or towards godliness, and there is positive communication that does lead towards growth. So what I want us to take a look at first are forms of communication that are harmful and not healthy. Look with me in uh, verse 14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning morning, will be counted as cursing. So the first form of communication that's not helpful is cursing. I I love this illustration because I am naturally not a morning person. Okay, I am so it would it would not be a good thing for a friend of mine who is a morning person to come in their excitement and in their exuberance about the day to come and wake me one second before I need to be awoken. I'm the type of guy that calculates every last second of sleep that I possibly can get. I'm not a snoozer, so as soon as my alarm gets up, I'm up out of the bed. But you wake me up one second before that alarm clock goes off. And I am irritable, to say the least. Anyone else like that? Okay, amen. I see those hands. Amen. How many of you are morning people? Curse you, curse all of you. (laughs) So we can see the difference here. So what this, this proverb is talking about is there's a difference between morning people and not morning people. So the morning person... Um, what, what we see here is the morning person, the challenge with the morning person, is that this morning person is doing and saying words in the wrong way and at the wrong time, right? Look, he says again, what, what verse was that? 14, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. So he's trying to bless his neighbor, but he's doing it in a loud voice early in the morning. So he's doing the wrong words at the wrong time in the wrong way. In essence, what I think is happening is what we see is this one friend or neighbor is a morning person, the other is not. And so what the morning person does is he sees over, he looks over at his neighbor and says, my neighbor is not a morning person, but everyone should be a morning person. If I'm a morning person, they should be a morning person. And so this morning person is trying to show the excitement and trying to make the other person who's not a morning person a morning person, right? Because everyone should, if you are a right type of person, if you're a good person, if you're the right type of friend, if you're going to be my friend, then you need to be a morning person as well. And so this person sees the difference, but wants to take the other person and make them like themselves. And that's challenging. 
It's challenging because we, we live in life like this as well, where we, we see people trying to say the wrong things at the wrong times in the wrong way. And really, it's an issue of the one friend being inconsiderate of the other person's difference. And when we do that, when we try to, to make other people just like us in ways that are unimportant, it can be a good thing to be a morning person. It can be a good thing not to be a morning person. That, that, there's, there's a distinction there, but there's, there's no better or worse. It's just the way God has made us. And so when we, we see our differences and we want to take something that is, that is not sinful or that is not ungodly and try to make it like the other, sometimes we use the wrong words and hurtful words. And instead of being words of encouragement, they can be received as words of cursing. Which is challenging. Words of cursing can create unnecessary conflict. The second type of unhealthy communication is found in verse 15. Continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. Just let that soak in for a minute. I don't have any idea what this passage is all about. I'm just kidding. This, this, this passage, this verse, shows us a pattern of communication and interaction that is destructive. Now, if we look at this, this proverb as a whole, what we see is Solomon gives different types of words to talk about different types of relationships. So here, he's using the example of the wife. And so a wife or the spouse relationship is a type of friendship. In just the verse we looked at before, he takes a look at friendships that are among neighbors. And then he also, in between those two verses, he talks about the friendship between a father and a son. So Solomon's giving us the picture of, of friendships as a whole. And so he's going to pull out marriage, and he's like, this is another type of friendship. And the communication that happens in a marriage can, can either be beneficial or it can be harmful. And here, he's pointing out a pattern of communication that is destructive. It's the image of two people that are constant, constantly in conflict with one another. It's like the example of sometimes we, we ride our kids to school in the morning, and sometimes our, our car on this car ride to school is a place of great contention. It is a, a, a place in which one of the kids in the backseat can look up at the sky, and they can say, you know what, the sky is beautiful blue. And another kid in the back will say, uh-uh, it's not blue. Don't you see the orange? Don't you see the pink? The sun? It's not just blue. Like, just, just to say something to be contrary, right? And, and it's, yes, the sky is both blue and the sky is both orange and whatever. It on, depends on which part of the sky you're looking at, right? But sometimes we live in this place where there's this contention, this continual dripping. This is the, the friend that continually looks at the other person and continues to point out their deficiencies in not helpful ways. This is the friend that's able to, to identify and see the things in their friend that aren't good, that, that may not be uplifting. Maybe they're things that are in their character and things that their, their behavior, their habits, that, that maybe are, are not the greatest. And so instead of trying to be helpful towards them, they just continue to blurt out and point out their deficiencies over and over and over again. And conversations like these are not just annoying, like the sound of a dripping faucet. 
Like that's, that's annoying. I don't know if, it, if you're like that, but that dripping faucet, just hearing it over and over and over again, gets on your nerves. But the imagery here is not just, just the drippy faucet. There's a way in which it can even be much greater. Imagine not just a leaky faucet, but a leaky pipe that is behind the wall. Now that may be something that's happening behind the wall or it's happening down deep in the person that happens over time that's slow. And it's this continual dripping, 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 dripping. And inevitably what happens is it begins to be soaked up by the insulation. It begins to be soaked up by the drywall and by the the foundation and the studs. And it begins to corrode. It begins to allow mold to grow. And what you have is this drippy faucet turn into huge, great, damaging structural issues. That's how damaging also a quarrelsome relationship or a quarrelsome friendship where there's this continual pointing out of your deficiencies. Not only does it have some outward examples, it has some inward ways in which it breaks you down and can kill you. Those are not the types of friendships that lead us to the Lord. Those are not the types of friendships the Lord wants us to be in. Or if we've taken on those habits in our friendships, those are things that we need to take before the Lord and ask for forgiveness. If all we can see in our friends are their deficiencies. There's an African proverb that says, when two bulls fight, it's the grass that suffers. Everyone loses. If you think about that just for a moment, you know, when you have two bulls that are fighting, they, what they'll inevitably do is they'll take their hooves and they will scratch the ground to try to get better leverage. And they will fight and they'll bicker and they'll continue to battle one another. And the whole time what they're doing is they're ripping up the grass, which is really their food. And so their fighting is not helping themselves and it's actually killing them in the long term. Because then they have to go find some other place for food. So Solomon here is very quick to point out there's a way in which we can communicate. There's a way in which we can be confronted or conflict with our friends and it not be helpful. But then he gives us forms of communication that are hard but but are helpful in godliness. Look with me in verses 5 and 6. He says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. He says there's a way in which our words from our friends, words of correction, can be helpful and beneficial towards godliness. You see, a true friend is going to give you time and attention. They're going to see your life, they're going to live in their life, and they're going to see the areas of your life that are not exactly what you want to be. They're going to be able to see the areas of your life where you're not living in the pattern of godliness that God has designed us to be. But this friend is going to come close, and they're not always going to use words that are flattering. They're going to tell you the way it is. They're going to give you open rebuke. They're going to tell you ways in which you, need, you can improve, but it's coming from a place not of anger, a deceit. It's coming from a place of love. They're looking at your life saying, hey, I see this in your life. This may not be helpful. This may actually be harmful. So they communicate it. There's a genuine love. There's a a way in which 
this honest love causes there to need, like you, you want to be able to confront people. You want to be able to correct behavior that is ungodly. That's what friends do. We all need someone in our lives to help give us feedback. As you know, um, for the past year or so, I've been trying to learn how to swim as I'm preparing for an Ironman. And last year at this time, I, I wasn't a good swimmer at all. And so I was very open to feedback. I wanted, I, w- I would get counsel from everyone. YouTube was my friend. So I would go and I'd try to learn how to swim. I was talking to everyone that I knew was a swimmer. Like, how do you swim? How do you do it? And so I've, I've learned over time. And now I can easily go into a pool, swim two miles or so without stopping, and it not be a big deal. Like, it was great. Like, I feel a big sense of accomplishment in that, but I knew I didn't do it alone. I had a lot of people along the way. But something happened to me a couple weeks ago that was shocking. I go to the, the YMCA pool, which is something normal, and uh, I, I ended up being in, in the lane right next to the lifeguard stand. And so I jump in, and I start doing my laps like I normally do. And the the lifeguard, she's some high school girl. She looks down at me, and she says, excuse me, can can I just offer you a piece of advice? So instantly, like, I'm thinking in my mind, wait a minute, wait, you're some high school girl. You know I can go swim two miles now, and you want to give me advice? And she says, and so in in my mind, I'm like, okay, I need to hear it. I need to hear What is it? She's like, you know, when you're swimming, your, your, your left arm, as it's coming in, and it's crossing over the midline of your body. And she says, you know, that's not very efficient, and it can actually hurt your shoulder. And I'm like, huh, that's not, thank you for telling me that. So I tried the next few laps. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's actually right. It actually feels a little bit better. So then I come back, and, and I'm taking a breath, and she goes, uh, can I, can I, what, just, just, just one more thing? I'm like, sure, go ahead. She's like, you know, you're swimming, and your right leg is, is flutter kicking like it's supposed to, but you know when you do your left leg, it does this kind of weird frog kick thing? She goes, that's not really that efficient. And I, in, inside of me, I just, there was a battle going on so deep inside of me because I'm like, I know, I know how to swim. Like, but then I realized that over the course of time, there's a, a way in which we think we're doing it the right way, but we can allow negative habits to sink in. And so it may feel like it's right, but we need someone else looking at our lives, being able to say, you know what? Maybe that's not the best way. And yes, hearing that she's not my friend, nor, nor is she ever going to be my friend. But we have this girl who, who obviously knows more and has more experience than me. Look how my demeanor had changed over the year. Like if that would have happened last year, I would have been so thankful. But now because I've got it down, I know how to do it. Like I'm no longer open to open rebuke or correction. And I know she, doesn't, she, she just really cared for me. I, she wasn't trying to butter me up or flatter me. She was just trying to help. We need someone in our lives that's able and and willing to tell us the way it is. You know, it's also interesting. I think it's easy for us to want to be the person that is the giver of good advice, right? Is the one that is giving the correction. I love my kids because I get to be the corrector of their lives. It's not hard for me to give my kids correction, but sometimes it's hard for me to hear correction. But I think to be a good friend, it's, it's both of that, not just the corrector, 
but being corrected is okay. Next, Solomon gives us another way in which counsel is good, or in other words that are good, and the words are counsel. Look at me in, in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 9. It says, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. See, oil and perfumes have a, a way of having an effect on us. There's a way in which smells can, can change our disposition. There's a way in which they can energize us, or they can give us a sense of calming peace. I remember going into my grandma's house and there always being a smell of chocolate chip cookies. It made me feel at home. So even today as I smell chocolate chip cookies being baked, there's like just this sense of calmingness, right? And then there's this salivating and all this other stuff that goes on because I need to feed my face with these chocolate chip cookies. But there's a way in which that, that oil and perfume smells have a way of, of being sweet to us. And, and the proverb here is telling us the godly counsel of a friend has that same effect on us. That when we have the ability to go to a friend and, and say, tell me, help me see what I cannot see, or here's my life, this is the struggle that I'm walking through right now, or this is a decision that I'm walking through, can you give me some insight? Can you help me see what I should do? Can you give me some encouragement? And so there's a way in which we can counsel one another and, and godly counsel. Having a friend that's a good sounding board, a friend that helps us navigate the challenges of life, a friend that helps encourage us to walk in the ways of the Lord. Those are things that we need. Not just a friend where we can go and complain to and they're gonna just jump on and give us more complaining. Like you have those friends, right, where you like, oh, can you believe work is so bad? And they're like, yeah, your boss is blah, 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 blah. Instead of saying, you know, what the Bible says, you're supposed to honor your boss, you're supposed to work hard, all those good things. That's kind of what we're talking about here. There's, there's a way in which our counsel can be encouraging, and there's a way that it can also be damaging. But iron sharpening iron. You know, I think one of the, the best ways that iron sharpening iron is exemplified is in the relationship between Paul and Barnabas and their friendship. I think if we, we look into their lives and their friendship, we can see how this works itself out in a way that's real. If we turn to Acts chapter 4, we, we meet a young man who has just come to know Christ. His name is John. And John uh, comes to know Christ, and soon after in his walk with Christ, something happens because Christ is living inside of him. He becomes a different man. And what happens is they change his name. His name gets changed from John to Barnabas. And Barnabas itself, the name means son of encouragement. So because John becomes a believer and begins to grow in his relationship, something changes. He becomes a man of encouragement, so much so that it changes his name. And so we meet Barnabas. And soon after that, in chapter 5 of Acts, we meet another man whose name is Saul. Saul is a man who has grown up very religious. He's a Jewish man that, that loves God and is trying to live his life to please God. And so he decides the best thing that he could do to please God is to persecute Christians. And so Saul, on his way to Damascus one day to persecute Christians even more, Jesus shows up in the, the, the form of a great light and goes to Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that, that exchange between God and Saul, Saul becomes a believer. And his name gets changed from Saul to Paul. 
And so we have these two men who have stories that are coming from different places, but are, have their lives being changed by the same God that are going to come and intersect in a way that is going to be so beautiful. After Paul uh, has this encounter on the road to Damascus, he goes away for, several, uh, for a certain amount of time and begins to, to grow in his faith. He studies the word, and God is working in his life. And so he comes back to Jerusalem, and he feels like the Lord is leading him to a, a place of being a servant of the church. And the believers in Jerusalem see that Paul is coming, and they knew he's a persecutor of Christians, And they have some doubts about who he is. So in Acts chapter 9, this is the encounter what happens. When Paul comes back in Jerusalem and we see Paul and Barnabas beginning their relationship. It says in in verse 26 of chapter 9. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So the, the Christians in Jerusalem could not believe, as Paul is coming back, that he could possibly be a disciple. Then verse 27 says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Now I love this because... We see, I'm not sure exactly how much Paul and Barnabas knew each other before this, but what we see is Paul or Barnabas, being the son of encouragement, steps in, who already has a relationship with these church leaders in Jerusalem, is able to step in and he's able to vouch for Paul. He's able to put his reputation on the line and able to see what God is doing in Paul and being able to say, this man is a man of God. We can trust the God that is in him. So that relationship begins to grow. That begin, the relationship actually begins to start. And from there, it begins to grow. So from there, later on, Paul goes, or Barnabas goes on to uh, plant churches. And he's working in Antioch. And soon he calls and he says, I need some help here. So who does he call? He doesn't call the Ghostbusters. He calls on Paul. He says, Paul, will you come join me down here in Antioch as we're working together? So Paul and Barnabas begin working together in Antioch and serving the church and loving the saints and helping, encouraging through sharing of the gospel. And then they go from Antioch and they say, no, we need to share the gospel with other regions. So they leave there and they start planting churches on their first missionary journey. And then they come back to Antioch and they're getting ready to go on their next missionary journey. This is in chapter 15. And remember what I said about relationships before? If there's ever a relationship, it takes communication, and inevitably what happens? There's going to be conflict. In chapter 15, we see Paul and Barnabas get into a place where conflict arises, and they disagree with one another. I want to read to you what happens. It says, after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and to see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it was best not to take them because he had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul took Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches." What we see happening here is conflict arising through arguably the greatest mission team of all time. 
this dynamic duo of kingdom expansion and kingdom growth is now separating. Conflict arose between Paul and Barnabas over the philosophy of ministry. They disagreed over what to do with John Mark. You see, John Mark had accompanied him during their first missionary trip. And for whatever reason, John Mark had to leave and he deserted them. And now as they're beginning to take the second missionary trip, Barnabas wants to take John Mark. He says, he's still beneficial to our ministry. And Paul says, nah-uh. And so we see there's a difference in the way in which they, they view their philosophy of ministry. Barnabas saw ministry, his ministry, as an opportunity to grow in grace. Like he understood the grace of God, and because he's a man of encouragement, could look at John Mark and says, you know what, John Mark, maybe, maybe he just needs some more time. Maybe he just needs us to walk along with him. He needs another chance. Who doesn't need another chance in life, right? How many of us have lived perfect lives? Well, none of us. And so he says, well, let's, let's allow the grace of the Lord to cover him, and let's see if we can give him another chance. So, so let's take him. And Paul says, uh-uh, Paul's ministry and his philosophy of ministry is that he need to maintain mission fidelity. Paul understood that the mission was great, that the needs of the people were amazing, the gospel still needed to go, and he didn't have time to wait behind to coddle and care for John Mark. The gospel needed to go. And so you look at both of these positions, and you say, well, who was right? Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? And both of them biblically have their own standing for the way in which they chose to go. But could you imagine if they disagreed? And could you imagine if, if Paul says, you know what? That's all right. Let's go. And the whole time they're going, Paul, instead of thinking about the, the gospel being shared, he's being frustrated because John Mark is with them. Could you imagine that? But I think there's a way in which their disagreement, it says they disagreed sharply. And many times disagreeing sharply causes the relationship to be severed. This is not the case. Paul and Barnabas' relationship is not severed. Because it, there, we know it wasn't severed in a bad way because it did not distract them from the mission of God. It actually allowed for the mission of God to have exponential growth because not only now was there one mission team, there were two mission teams. And so together they were able to cover more ground. Neither was wrong. Both philosophies were good. And God used them to go their separate ways. And we even look to the, the future in, in 2 Timothy, as Paul's writing 2 Timothy chapter 4. He actually sends for John Mark at that time. And he says, John, John Mark, please come to my ministry here because you will be helpful to me. So my question to us this morning, question to you today, is are you living in sharpening relationships? Can you look to the friends that, that you've drawn close or you've allowed to have close access to your life? And are those friends that you have sharpening you? Are they dulling you? Or are they hurting you? Do you have friends that will tell you the truth? Do you have friends that you will allow access to say, hey, look at my life and please tell me the ways in which I need to be corrected? Do you have friends that give you godly counsel? Do you have friends that you can go to when you're struggling with decisions or, or not, life's just not making sense? 
Do you have friends that you go to that lead you closer to the Lord? And are you that friend for someone else? You know, I'm, I'm so thankful that God gives us, he gives us relationships. I'm so thankful that he gives us different types of relationships too. I'm thankful that I can look at my life and I can see friends. God has blessed me with, with great friends in, in Pastor John and Pastor Terry. And I can honestly tell you, I, I, I've lived in this sharpening uh, for the past three years that we've been here. It's good to know that I have friends that have my back, that, I, that, that listen to preaching and listen to how uh, we lead and, and have the ability to speak into my life and say, hey, Jeff, you can do greater things in this way, but also have the humility of being able to receive correction from me or counsel from me. So it's good. I'm blessed. I'm thankful for friends. I'm thankful for a wife who is not a drippy faucet, but a wife that is very loving and very caring to helping me be a better husband and a better father. So I pray today that as we we go from this place, that we would hear the words of the Lord and we would use this words to help us examine our friendships and help us know how we are to to live in a way uh, that honors the Lord. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and for your word. God, I thank you that in your word you show us uh, and you've given us friendships and you've given us um, examples and models of what friendships are supposed to be like. And so, Father, I, I, I know you also are aware of, of habits in our lives that are not helpful. And so, God, I, I pray as we evaluate our own friendships that you would help us to see those that are healthy and those that are harmful and that you would lead us to help make changes in both of those. Father, help us to be good friends. Help us to be friends that, that look to those you place near us and in loving ways we draw close and we speak words into each other's lives and we give counsel that help people uh, find ways back to you. Oh, but God, in all things, as we're journeying on this path together, may you be our God. And may we be your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Go in peace.